This right here is the Twimmy Lab. You are now listening to Twim FM. Real talk, real awesome. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally, I'm finally me. Finally, I'm finally free. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Tonight on our show, we have guest author Daniel Jose Older to talk to us about his latest novel called Half Resurrection Blues. So we're really excited to have him on the show. And our co-hosts tonight are Connie and Angel. Angel is going to be calling in in just a bit. Um, so before we get to our guests, I just want to go over some things with you. If you are listening in, remember that you can always use that hashtag on Twitter. It's BGM Podcast. That puts you into the feed to live tweet with other TWIB li- listeners um, on Twitter. And then there's also a chat room on twib.fm forward slash live is the link to listen to the show. And you can join into the chat there. Also, you can give us a call if you want to speak to Daniel, ask him some questions. The studio number is 718-404-9320. Again, it's 718-404-9320. Check out our website. We've had some recent updates, blackgirlnerds.com forward slash calendar. And on the calendar, we have our podcast schedule. We've got um, actual guests and events that are booked all the way until March. Um, so we have a live tweet schedule, convention appearances, guest interview appearances, and all of the live chats that I like to facilitate on Twitter. So check out that calendar when you get a chance. It's blackgirlnerds.com forward slash calendar. And just to make an announcement as well for a new book, we have another author um, that's doing a book called Everything I Know About Zombies I Learned in Kindergarten by Kevin Wayne Williams. It's a horror novel about nine-year-old Letitia Johnson, a girl who, when the zombie apocalypse strikes, gathers her five-year-old sister and her sister's classmates and hide them in a school bathroom. Letitia has to try to take care of a dozen five-year-olds, and there's no one around to take care of her. So check out everything I know about zombies I learned in kindergarten. If you go to the Black Girl Nerds website on the right sidebar, there's a blog ad. It's featured there, and that link will take you over to the author's website. All right, so I am going to pass the virtual mic over to Connie. If you can just introduce yourself, tell us what you're up to, your Twitter handle, any future projects or special projects that you're working on. Uh, sure. Hey guys, I'm Connie, Comstar24 on Twitter, uh, fellow black girl nerd. I live in New York City. Um, I'm a big TV junkie, and I write a lot about TV and screenwriting and diversity on my blog, TV. But I'm really excited for this podcast in particular because I love TV now. But uh, reading was my first love, and I love sci-fi fantasy. So to, to get to talk to a diverse author who writes that kind of thing is really exciting to me because I didn't grow up with a lot of that. So I'm just really excited to be on this podcast today. Thank you so much, Connie. And Angel's our other co-host. She may be calling in. I know she had some phone issues and internet issues, but um, if not, I will ask some of her questions that she also had for Daniel on the show. Angel did um, a review this week uh, for Half Resurrection Blues, which is the new novel that we're talking about. 
So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guests. Daniel Jose Oler is the author of Half Resurrection Blues, book one of the Bone Street Rumba urban fantasy series from Penguin Rocks Books, and an upcoming young adult novel, Shadow Shaper, Scholastic Arthur A. Levin Books, 2015. Publishers Weekly hailed him as a rising star of the genre after the publication of his debut ghost noir collection, Salsa Nocturna. He co-edited the anthology Long Hidden, Speculative Fiction from the Margins of History, and guest edited the music issue of Crossed Genres. His short stories and essays have appeared in Tor.com, Salon, BuzzFeed, and New Haven Review, Pank, Apex, and Strange Horizons, and the anthologies Subversion and Mothership, Tales of Afrofuturism, and beyond. Daniel's band Ghost Star gigs regularly around New York, and he facilitates workshops on storytelling from anti-oppressive power analysis. You can find his thoughts on writing and read dispatches from his decade-long career as an NYC paramedic and hear his music at ghostart.net forward slash on YouTube. And on Twitter, he is at DJ Older. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you so much. You know I love your show and your website and the whole thing that you're doing. And I'm really, really excited to be here. Well, I am thrilled to have you on. You were on our show last year, so thank you so much for coming back. I'm yes. glad we didn't scare you away. Yes. <laughs> great time. And so did Rose last time. It was a lot of fun. Yes, indeed. So I'm really excited to talk about this book, which is amazing, Half Resurrection Blues. Thank but you. for some of the listeners out there who may not have read Half Resurrection Blues, shame on you, by the way. Um, <laughs> it, it just came out. We can give them a little bit of time. <laughs> Uh, give us a brief summary of what the story is about. <clears throat> so basically, Carlos de la Cruz is um, half dead and half alive. And he kind of just appeared back in the world after dying in some way that he doesn't know how, but it wiped out his entire memory. And he got taken into the fold of this kind of horrible bureaucracy of death called the Council of the Dead. And they use his in-between status to kind of send him around um, and do all their dirty work. So they're the ones that try to enforce the delicate balance between life and death. And they basically, um, whenever there's kind of a situation that needs any kind of solving or cleanup that involves living people, they send Carlos because he's actually in a living body, but he's half dead. So Half Resurrection Blues is really this kind of turning point in his life where he suddenly realizes that there are other half dead people out there. And so he ends up killing one and falling in love with another real quick right off the bat. That's not even a spoiler. It all happens real suddenly. And, you know, within like a day, basically, he's just suddenly immersed in this whole other world that is a part of him but totally different from him. And a lot of it is about him just being between two worlds, being this in this in-between position where he has living friends and dead friends, and he has to sometimes choose between them, and he has to – you know, make his own decisions based on this kind of evil bureaucracy that he works for and all these things play out. Plus there's these little evil creatures that um, start appearing all over Brooklyn on stationary bikes and he has to deal with all them and it, it's a big mess. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and um, I really love stories that are featured uh, with the backdrop of the gritty streets of New York City. Um, was New York City chosen because of your attachment to the city? Because I know you're from Brooklyn, you live in Brooklyn, um, or was it just used to help serve the story? Um, well, I'm actually from Boston originally. I've been in Brooklyn for 11 years, um, but I do love Brooklyn. It, 
in his home, and it's, it's really a special place. Um, it's I wrote it I wrote it here because this is what I know best at this point in my life, and it, Brooklyn just comes alive. Um, if you're a writer and you're walking around the streets, like you, you know, there's so much here. There's so I mean, really any city, and uh, but especially Brooklyn, you know, it has a heart, it has a soul, and it has so much happening right now. Both in terms of a you know it's an amazing moment for artists here, and it's also a, a, a violent and a dangerous and a scary moment in terms of gentrification and mm. police brutality and all these other things that are happening that are so real. Um, and I think literature needs to speak on that, and I think mm. fantasy literature really needs to speak on that because mm -hmm. you know especially if we're talking about writing urban fantasy, you know I, where where is the where is the the real problems, where are the real problems that are going on in the cities across America? We don't see them a lot when we, when we look at urban fantasy. Um, we often see like a very whitewashed version of the city, mm -hmm. and it's right. sort of the genre has become uh, very gentrified in a way. Um, so that was part of the impulse to write the book was to try to write a city that I knew to be true rather than the one that I kept seeing, you know, in these books where it's like another where mosquito chases a ferret. And it's like, <laughs> how, can, how can we get to those deep problems and still talk about magical monsters? You know, I believe we can do both. Um, so that was part of why I wanted to write this here. And, and, and Half Resurrection does, you know, have, yes, like Brooklyn is a backdrop, and within that backdrop is an ever-changing crisis because the cities are in crisis, and the crisis mm -hmm. is gentrification, the crisis is racism and all these other problems that are going on, and they're very real. Yes, wow. Mm -hmm. Um, so Half Res Blues is very supernatural noir, speaking of sort of the gritty New York City of it all. Um, are there any other noir books or movies that inspired this, or did it just come naturally in the storytelling? And if not, any noir fiction, any other fiction that may have helped lead to, to you developing the story? You know, I realized that one of the first um, supernatural detective stories I read when I was a kid is um, it's called The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. It's a Douglas Adams book. It's the second book in the Dirk Gently Solicited Detective Agency series, not the Hitchhiker's Cat series. And that's this amazing book because this, this guy, this cat in London, is basically going around solving uh, supernatural crimes in a modern-day, normal London. Um, and then Norse gods, Norse gods just start popping up. And, and <laughs> As they do, and, you know. As they do, right. You know, it's like Thor appears in someone's living room, and it's so well done. I mean, I, we, I used to listen to this when I was a kid. I'm probably too young to actually really have any business listening to it, because it's a pretty <laughs> story. But it's so good, and it's so well told. And I love the idea of these kind of two worlds clashing. I love mm -hmm. I, The Iliad is another of my first favorite books when I was a little mm -hmm. kid. Iliad like I was a huge Greek mythology fanatic and yeah. so the idea of like these human beings going about our business and, and making that a true and kind of grounding force in the story but also this wild supernatural world and that the wild supernatural world is very human you know like Greek gods and the Iliad are always just messing up and having all kinds of messy sex and breaking up oh, with yeah. each other. it's a disaster right it's just like <laughs> so human but that's why we can connect to them too and so there's this connection moment that happens. So the ghosts in my books are very human uh, because they were human, you know, and like, so they, they're messy. And the, the, the bureaucracy of death is messy in a very human way. And all these kind of different things play out. So that idea of like an infallible God or this one wild spiritual power that destroys everything kind of gets taken apart and put back together, I think. Mm. Yeah. And 
lots of supernatural noir stories have an anti-hero. Do you consider Carlos an anti-hero? What are things that you love about his character? And what are things that he probably needs to work on that maybe readers can relate to? <laughs> you know, in the, in the sequel, in the sequel, um, Kia, who, who, um, this teenage girl that, that works at a botanica that he goes to a lot, takes him aside and she's like, you know, you just got re, you know, re put back together. And so you've just been walking around with no memory, and it's only been about four years. So really, emotionally, you're kind of a four-year-old in a grown man's body. <laughs> and that is the truth. And I got to credit my fiance, Nassim, for pointing that out, because it's true. He's, um, he's like, very emotionally <laughs> still working on things. Yeah, but, you know, we all are. So I think he gets right? a little bit of a pass on that. Um, he's, he's, in a very, he's a very emotional person, but he's trying to be that badass that noir characters are supposed to be. Mm, so he's right. like out there being like, you know, like it's another dark night in Brooklyn. And then he just <laughs> goes, and then he like doesn't get his heart broken and it like, it just doesn't work out. Like he's, he cannot be that badass that he knows he's supposed to be. And also a lot of the stories with him, both in Half Resurrection and in Salsa Nocturna, he, his, his trajectory is always towards becoming more a part of the world. Um, so he always ends up making really good friends that he doesn't expect to and becoming kind of part of this larger community. And I always, I think that's a really interesting thing for literature to think about is like, what's beyond that singular badass dude that's walking around all, you know, kind of lonely and messed up and everything. Like mm -hmm. there, there's such, there's such amazing stories about community and about being a part of something bigger and all these things. It's like, where, where are those anymore and in genre? I mean, they're out there, um, but I think it's worth thinking about it and thinking about it as a trajectory um, because while it's yes, a love story, it's also a story about someone becoming a part of something bigger, becoming a part of a community. Yeah, mm. that's really important. I want to take it to Twitter. We got a question here for you, Daniel. This is from yeah. Courtney Hinton. Uh, she uh -huh. asks, what's your typical process from book idea to cohesively forming it to working on it daily to publication? Yeah, great question, because everyone's is really different, and I think a lot of becoming a writer is finding what your process is and mm -hmm. not doing someone else's, because up until mm -hmm. that point, just kind of trying to find it, and you often you're bumping up against the wall of someone else's process not being yours. So, and it's a lot of trial and error, and it changes. So, like, even when you find it, then it switches mm -hmm. later, or you get a different job, and your schedule changes, or whatever. Those are all things. But for me, I will... A lot of times now I'm working from the same world. So Bone Street Roomba is like this whole world of supernatural Brooklyn. And mm. the world is kind of there. And then what will happen is I'll see somebody and I'll be like, oh, what? they have some stories. You know, like <laughs> something will just trigger that kind of imagination and it'll start moving. And then there's almost no stopping it. When a character comes to life, that's when I know that at least a story will be born out of them because it so much goes back to voice. And if I can click in with the voice of a particular character, I feel like I can do anything. Like I can, you, you know, I can just pick mm -hmm. a random myth and retell it from that character's point of view and make it work uh, on mm -hmm. some level. And then once, so then it'll be a story. And once the story happens, then I start to get a sense of like, is this actually a much bigger story? And every story is really, there's no story that's actually on its own or singular. Um, but then it's like, is this a story I could actually really, you know, spend months writing and really expand and, and create? And I, I usually have a feel for that by the time I finish writing a short story. I get a sense of how much bigger it is. So, like, a good way to actually see that process for me is if you look at the two stories I have up at Tor um, most recently. One of them is called Anyway Angie, and the other is called Kia and Gia that just went up last week. 
And those are both from book two. Mm. But they're really just, I wrote them as short stories, but then later they became part of the sequel, The Half Resurrection. Um, and when I wrote them, I, you know, I wasn't, I knew they were going to be bigger than what they were, but I wasn't sure how. And then it was a question hmm. of how they all kind of tied back into each other. I know they always say, write what you know. Um, so I'm glad you touched on that because it sounds like your process stems from a series of experiences. And then you just sort of intertwine that into various stories that you've written along the way. So I'm glad that you touched on that process because you're right. Every writer does have a different way to approach their writing. Um, yeah, it's a combination too, I would say, because you can only write what you know up to a point. And then right. you've got to make up stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> True. But, Not everybody's but walking around half dead, half alive. <laughs> right, and I don't actually quite know that. But what I know, you know, like Carlos came out of my, Carlos's voice came out of my ambulance blog. So when I was a paramedic, I mm. um, would blog about it. And I was dealing with a lot of bureaucracy. And that was, people were always like, oh, my God, that job must have been so stressful. People are dying. And like, honestly, the dying, people dying part wasn't as bad as the bureaucracy part. Because, <laughs> right. And that's sad. But you learn, you know, you, when people are dying, you're there to do something about it. So you do something about it. So you're very yeah. an active participant in the situation and trying to make it better, which mm -hmm. is a very healing position to be in rather than just seeing someone get hit by a car or something, which is traumatizing. But the trauma is healed by the action. It's really when it's all this other stuff, the paperwork and the politics and the, you know, the messiness mm -hmm. of bureaucracy and business, that stuff was just like, that was depressing. You know, so that's what turned into the Council of the Dead and this character that's walking in between two worlds and dealing with life and death and all of those things. Hmm. Oh. Excellent. Well, I'm going to combine this next question. This was Angel's question and then also a question from Twitter. Angel yep. wants to know what inspired you to write the book. And then on Twitter, Pirate Jenny, Lakia Poole. She wants to know, were there any novels that you looked to for inspiration in writing this one in terms of characterization, writing style, et cetera? If there were novels I looked to for inspiration? Yes. Hmm. I mean, so many. That's a great, <laughs> I, I try to read really widely and, um, and also I try to make sure I, I stay knowing about my genre. Um, so I would read a lot of what was going on with other urban fantasy and supernatural detectives. Um, and then I would also read, you know, the classics and all these other things. I don't think, I don't know if I could say there was one that was like, yes, let me do this. There were a lot that were like, oh no, let me not do that. <laughs> and there were a lot that were like, oh, I want to do something that kind of approaches this amazing voice, um, but not quite, you know, it, of course, because you don't want to do what someone else has done. But I would say it's really just a process of, of growing together a lot of different things and kind of picking and choosing what makes the most sense. I mean, that's how we build our voice is by mm -hmm. finding our own voice amidst reading, you know, other people's voices. I mean, Baldwin is a huge inspiration to me. And, of course, he did not write urban fantasy. <laughs> but um, his, you know, his truth telling and his prose and just, like, they blow me away. And I, I like the – and also uh, music, like, I love the idea of taking influences from things that are totally outside of what you're doing and finding out what happens when you put it into, you know, this whole other realm. So if I'm if I'm trying to reach for something like the power of Radiohead, you know, and what they can do <laughs> with sound, but I'm trying to do it on the page, like what will happen? I will not achieve anything like Radiohead, of course, 
but can I get somewhere literarily that's like, you know, in that direction? That would be interesting. You know what I mean? Like Janelle Monet, yeah. like, like oh, yeah. some like truth in the mythology of trying to like get towards what's going on over there. So, you know, I look at it as a challenge that I know I will fail at, but find something interesting on the way. <laughs> wow. I wouldn't call That's it failing. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, certainly not. Just but creating I, something new. Exactly. I, I yeah, love that comparison to, to Radiohead, too. I, I never thought of it in terms of creating music, that it's the same thing that you can do, you know, from a literary standpoint with putting words onto the page. So Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fun that way. I always write listening to music and... Uh, you know, that makes it kind of flow clear. Well, on Twitter, which this may sort of um, fall into what we just discussed, this is from India. I got a lot of questions on Twitter, by the way. Um, India says, do you have a particular atmosphere or a mind frame to write? Do you have to be uh, in a particular atmosphere or mind frame to write? Um, yes and no. There's ideal ones for sure. Um, <laughs> Like, when I'm rolling on a novel, I try to really get in, like, a 1,000, 2,000 words a day. But I, having said that, I do take days off, and I believe really strongly in taking days off, even when you're deep in the throes of trying to finish a project. Um, you have to live. You know, you have to be alive. And you have to pay your rent and make money. <laughs> writing books doesn't always do that, especially not at first. Um, in fact, it rarely does. Yeah, so, you know, I'm a big advocate, and I say this a lot on Twitter, um, of, of – of not feeling like you have to write every day. If that's your process, that's awesome. Um, but that's not everybody's process. And mm. what really happens a lot with that advice is like people start feeling guilty and shameful and oh, then yeah. they don't write every day and they feel bad about it. So then they have a really unhealthy relationship to the blank page or the project mm. or whatever. Yes. You can't sit down at the writing desk feeling guilty already. You know what I mean? Like you have to forgive yourself before you begin writing. Otherwise, you'll just be cramped and your whole style will just be like, you know, like you'll just be mad at yourself. That's not a good place to write from. So mm. I want to take the question and make it a little bit um, metaphorical in the sense of the best frame of mind to write is one where you're forgiving yourself and one where you're at ease with yourself on some level. Of course, you're not going to wait until you're totally at peace <laughs> to sit down because the other piece to that is you have to write, you know, you have to do, you have to put words down and it's not always going to be in the best circumstances. So it's this combination, it's this balance that you, you know, you have to find within yourself of like, what can I do and what do I have to do and how am I going to get there? You're not always going to have, you know, your office. Listen, I wrote most of, I wrote a, a chunk of Half Resurrection Blues in the back of an ambulance on a stretcher between wow. calls <laughs> yeah like wow. between literally between gunshot calls and heart attacks and all the other and then and then all the bs that we do which is the majority of the job um <laughs> people calling for stuff that you're like why why <laughs> but uh, you gotta fix uh, that on the it, way to the phone <laughs> no, right like I, I you you've had you had arm pain for three years and you're calling 911 tonight when i'm in the middle of a chapter <laughs> <laughs> how dare you <laughs> Like, what are you thinking? I was going to get dinner after I finished this chapter. Whatever. Your, your arm hurts. All right, here I come. And it's your right arm? Get out of here. Yeah, but yeah, all that to say is, you, as a writer, you have to learn definitely to adjust to different situations and make the situation as much, you know, to your favor as you can. And, again, you have to forgive yourself. You have to find self-love on some level, not perfection, of course, but so that you can sit and, you know, work on the work and not just be like, <laughs> well, 
Twitter, I've got a couple of requests for this, so I will throw it out there. Obviously, they've read the book. They want you to pronounce NGK. <laughs> oh, yeah. I called it the Hermione problem of, like, people who read Harry Potter and didn't know how to pronounce her character's name. And so that's what I was calling it. This is my Hermione problem. How am I pronouncing this in my head? So, go. <laughs> Describe this before as trying to speak through a mouth gag and then uh, a hi-hat. Or a snare hit, rather. So it's like, ink. 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 Yeah. Ink. Ink. Okay. It's like, your, it's like muffled grunt and then a, and then a snare hit. Ink. <laughs> but it should be uncomfortable because they're really uncomfortable little bastards. Yeah, it's a, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a nasty name for a nasty creature. Yeah. <laughs> you have the book, you can see the picture in the inside of how really just really uncomfortable they are because they're like, you know, about, they come up to like your ankle and they ride little exercise bikes and they just sit there chuckling and <laughs> panting and grinning and they don't look at anybody around them or talk to anybody and they just make life very unpleasant for any kind of spirits in the area. <laughs> Where did the exercise bike bit come from? Oh, Just man. out of your brain, the swirl of your brain? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need an answer to that that's better than just that's how it was, but I just, I just, like, I, uh, That's how they came you know, to you, fully formed. <laughs> came like that. I was like, that would just be so annoying. I hate it when you're talking to someone and they don't listen. They used to have, that was like my pet peeve on the ambulance. You go to someone's house because they call 911 and you roll up and you're like, okay, so what seems to be the problem? And they will be watching TV and not answer you. <laughs> and you're just like, <laughs> you called me. Yeah. It's chest pain. Why are you ignoring me? I don't even, I'm, I just, so like, that's probably what really that's about. It's like, they just go about their business on their little stupid motor, uh, uh, stationary bikes and ignore people and then cause devastation. <laughs> like, but, you know, that, yeah. See, guys, you can it take was, anything from any part of your life to, to attach right. it to your writing. Any part of your right. life. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Got some more questions on Twitter. Obviously, a lot of folks that's listening in live are writers. Um, so okay. this question is from Melody Gordon. What was your big break, and how did you get your first story published? Um, my, my first story was actually an essay that got published in an anthology that nobody ever heard of, which was called, I mean, I'm sure, no, some people heard of it, but it was published, like, far away in the West Coast and from a very small press. It was called Sunshine Noir, Sunshine Noir, Noir. And it was um, different stories about the border. So I wrote um, just a, a straightforward narrative essay about some, some work that I did on the border. And then I didn't get anything published for years. <laughs> and I was like, that was my one thing I was just holding on to. Like, I'm a writer. Um, <laughs> but having said that, let me tell you that being published is not what makes you a writer. Writing is what makes you a writer. Mm. Um, and then after that, I took kind of a break, actually, too. I was doing a lot of music, and I was doing a lot of being on the ambulance. Um, and then when I came back to writing, oh, I think it's called The Crate. It's on Cross Genres. Um, and so Cross Genres, who published Salsa Nocturna and Long Hidden, they definitely were a big supporter of me early on. They published a lot of my short stories, as well as Innsmouth Free Press and um, Strange Horizons. So some, some of these, um, these are basically speculative fiction markets. And I got a lot of rejections. And I got some rejections that were, like, just awful. Like, back then, I was really still, you know, when you knew as a writer, and I knew not to take rejections personally, but I was, it was, like, they pile up, and you're just like, man, 
And then you get some that, like, just are way off base, and you know they're off base, but you're trying as a writer to be, like, open to the critique. And then you look back a little while later, and you're like, why did I even, what? You know? <laughs> the Crate, actually, my first published story, The Crate, got one of the worst rejections I'd ever read from something from editor that just totally missed the point. I was, like, trying to lecture me on all kinds of things. I was just like, oh. And it was so just, like, bad, you know, in my, in my head. Um and it, it's great that it went on to get published, but even more than that, I think one of the really hard things as a writer is to know which critiques to take seriously and which to kind of be like, okay, that's the good stuff. Um, and a lot of it is going with your gut and knowing, because you're going to, as you put stuff out there and as you submit, you're going to hear so much stuff about your work. And some of it's going to be worthless information for you. And you have to know what's helpful, you know, what's good critique and what's just people being... Uh, you know, what's about their ego or whatever other things. But that happened, and, and then I kept publishing, and I started to gain some momentum. And then I reached out to Karajanos because I had some longer stories that I knew were too long for any one publication. And I was like, do you want to serialize something? And they were like, do you want to put a book together? And I was like, yes! <laughs> that's a great idea. And that's how Salsa Nocturna happened. Um, and that definitely changed a lot. And meanwhile, I was working on other stuff. And the great, like, other novels and just, like, writing the whole time. So really, like, good writing advice is when you submit something after you've celebrated and put it away and, and whatever and relax, you know, do start something else because it's good to have stuff in process, and that way you're not just focused on waiting because everything yeah. takes a long time in publishing, yeah. you know? right. I've got another question from Twitter, and then we'll get to our own questions here. This is from Awake Black Woman. When you get writer's block, what do you do to get out of it? I take walks. Um, everybody has different things, and it changes for me sometimes. I, do, I also hit the gym. I think it's really good to be active because writing, when you're not having writer's block, you're, like, so not active. <laughs> you need to take, adva <laughs> take advantage of writer's block <laughs> and get your ass on the street and do something, you know, with your body because writers <laughs> can get stuck. And it's, you know, they say write with your whole body, but if your whole body is just, you know, not very active, <laughs> it makes it harder to do that. <laughs> it's, very true. Move yourself around. It's important to do that. Um, so I do that. I've, I've, I've been at a place where I know now when I get stuck somewhere, it's just because I don't know what happens next in the story, which has mm -hmm. relieved a lot of stress for me. I, so it's not, I'm not worried anymore about like, oh my God, maybe I don't have anything else to say which I get, you know, that's like a real worry as a writer. But now I, I know what happens. I, I, I don't write from an outline. So I'll just write, and then I'll keep writing, and then I'll bump up against that moment where I'm like, oh, shh, can I swear? Am I not saying that? <laughs> I'll be like, oh, shoot. And then, um, I'll, you know, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen. So I take a walk, and I just make sure I think about what's going to happen. I'll make some coffee or something, and I'll just walk around Brooklyn. Or maybe I'll happen to have to go somewhere because uh, I – I teach and I have to do other stuff, so I'll take the train somewhere and on the train ride I'll put the music on and I'll figure it out. Or mm -hmm. just, but, um, you know, it's important, again, just like everything else, it's like what's your ritual? What's, what is your thing that, that, that loosens you up so that you're not staring at that page? Because the page will stare back at you and jack up <laughs> your whole flow. You know what I mean? Like, you yes. you feel like sitting in front of your computer, you're supposed to be writing. Um, and they say ass in the chair is like the number one rule, but no, like you have – it counts as writing if you're out there thinking about it. Because mm. if you're just sitting there with the ass in the chair and not writing anything, and you're intimidated by that blank page, and you don't know what you're writing about, what good is that? You know, like, mm. Take a walk. Like, live your life. You know, fall in love. Do all that shit. It's important. <laughs> it's like being alive. Writers have to be alive, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. Incredibly inspiring. Thank you for that. Uh, this is one of Angel's questions. The protagonist, Carlos, meets individuals of different lifestyle, culture, religion, and sex. Was his dealing of the interaction with them a way we should go about this in real life? Or was this your own personal acceptation? Adaptation. Hmm. You mean, um, hmm. you mean, do I think Carlos is like a good model for how to be in the world? Yeah, and how he interacts with various characters in the story. <laughs> I guess so. I didn't write him thinking, like, this is how to be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also laughing because someone on Twitter just told me to go fuck a goat. Oh, wow. No, I know, I, it's not about you guys. Though. It's just uh, random. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of how to be in the world, you know, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I, I, I think he is open-hearted and open-minded in a way that's good. And I think that that is something that I try to aspire to. I think he sort of lets himself get uh, caught up. He's, he's, I sort of thought about me when I was in my mid-20s a little bit. Not for exactly, like Carlos isn't me. Um, but some of the stuff he goes through is stuff that I went through as far as just trying to navigate through worlds, different worlds, and different, uh, his kind of different reactions to being in love. Uh, definitely stuff that I've, I've been doing and been through and seen my friends go through. Um, and I think I'd give him like a B plus. Like, you know, I think <laughs> he's a good on some level. And he's just got dealt a pretty, let's be honest, he's been dealt a rough hand. And he's definitely in a lot of messy situations. Soraya, uh, you know, who I, who I, I guess you don't know, one of my one of my best friends who I was a mentor in writing, who's on Twitter, uh, is always mad at me because of the, the horrible situations that I put Carlos in. But that's your job. <laughs> Unfortunately, you have to be a serious <laughs> character. Yeah. So it's like a thing where you create these people that you love, and then you have to put them through hell. <laughs> like, yeah. And then people get mad at you because they love them too, and then you <laughs> make you through hell. But that's good books. Like the good books are not about awesome things happening to people. Unfortunately. <laughs> right. <laughs> boring books, but um, so you know that's the challenge. I'm gonna skip heard... one of my. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I've just I've just heard that writing is putting your character up a tree and then throwing rocks at them. Yes, <laughs> that's what yes. you're saying reminds me of that. <laughs> Absolutely. I've never heard that. Yeah, is you got to put your character up the tree and then throw rocks at them. <laughs> I forget yeah. I heard that. I've that. But... <laughs> I forget who said. And two people. Let me shout out both. Obviously, Octavia Butler is amazing and a huge influence on me. And she was just mean to her characters. And Tananarive Du, who's an amazing writer, and yes mentor to me as well, just an amazing person. Um, Barry just knows how to make these amazing characters that you love and then put them through hell. And it's like, you got to be there for it because that's a great story. <laughs> as horrible as it is to experience, it's also amazing to experience because that's called, you know, raising the stakes and getting, you know, that's why we turn pages because the people we care about are struggling and we want to make sure they get through okay. I'm going to skip one of my questions because it's already been answered, and I'm going to move on to um, my next question about Twitter, social media. Let's We're on there a lot. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we follow each other on Twitter. We've been following each other for a while, so I, I see how often you're on there. You see how often I'm on there. Yep, how yep, do yep. you? Yeah. How do you discipline yourself to stay off of social media and and focus on your writing? Because that's I hard don't. for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm a bad person to ask that too because I actually believe in uh, multitasking can be a very useful tool. Um, mm. And well, let me say it like this. And again, this is another one of those things. This is like really my process, and everyone needs to figure out their process. For me, I learned that if I can get on my flow and hit that first 500 to 1,000 words without Twitter, which is really smart, then I know that I can I can really flow in the next 1,000 words with Twitter because I'm I, I, like you know you catch your rhythm. And so you move, it's like when you're jogging or you're biking or whatever. The first kind of whatever mile or however far you're going is kind of a struggle and you're trying to figure out everything and you're getting back into it. And then you catch your flow and you're just moving and you don't even think about it as you're weaving through traffic and everything is just happening around you and you're boom, boom. I used to be a bike messenger. And that's what it was like. The beginning of the day, you're just a mess. You're like, I haven't had my coffee. I don't know what address you're sending me to. It's a whatever. And then you kind of get into the rhythm of it. So I found that if I can do that beginning, you know, knock out that initial chunk and then uh, log on to Twitter, it actually makes the flow easier because I can kind of jump in and out of the pros. And, I, you know, I stay with it longer because I allow my focus to waver but stay with it at the same time. You know, you gotta find your you gotta find your method. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I follow you on Twitter as well, and I've seen you talk about this a lot. Um, so I just want you to share with the audience um, what, how you feel about italics in novels, especially when it comes to um, using <laughs> language other languages, especially Spanish. Um, and and recently <laughs> you wrote for the Guardian about Jane the Virgin, and you called their use of Spanish unapologetic which I really enjoyed. So um, just talk to us about your, your fight for lack of italics when it comes to so-called forward <laughs> words and phrases in novels. I feel strongly about italics. <laughs> <laughs> you do. It's fine. <laughs> I, I, just, I just find it so strange when you're reading, uh, especially a character that's bilingual, and mm -hmm. suddenly, you know, they're just talking, and they're like, and then I went over, and then they're like, La Biblioteca. It's like this talk. <laughs> But like the whole thing just becomes really dramatic all of a sudden. Like you're talking in italics now because, and there's a reason for that. Italics are they they show emphasis. That's what they do for us when we're reading. Mm -hmm. but if we're reading out loud, we're supposed to give emphasis to those words, which is exactly not how bilingual people speak. Uh, when we're talking, you know, like when I'm talking to my uncles and they're talking, they're telling me or something. It is completely flow. It, there's no stop. It's like, and then I went over there, and después yo me dije a mí, bueno, déjame hacer yo a ti, okay? I'm going to think about it a little more, después yo te digo. It's not, there's no block, there's no italic, there's no emphasis, it's just a pure, and that's the beauty of it. Yeah. So we do it, this huge injustice, when we stop, we make the reader stop and like point out this words and like, oh look, we're speaking in Spanish now. It's even weirder when they do it for Spanish words that have become involved in, right. in, in whatever the word is, within English. You know, yeah. It's like, yeah. And so let's go get some tacos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm what? calling my mommy in <laughs> italics. It's like, we, right. know what that, we know what that means. It looks just like the English word. You just spell it a little differently. It's okay. <laughs> right. It's so awkward. And it's such an archaic, really like old-fashioned approach, which really does the work of otherizing non-English languages. Mm -hmm. So that it makes, it sort of puts it in the context of like foreigner, you know, something else, something different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's un Other. untrue to the way that we are. So I'm against it. And Juno Diaz was against it before, you know, I ever saw anyone else speak up about it. I know he fought that fight and made a New Yorker not italicized in his stories. Nice. Uh, so props to him for that. And we're still fighting that fight. <laughs> in that yeah. piece, The Guardian, yeah. they italicized the word Theos. 
And I had I had already emailed them and been like, by the way, FYI, heads up, before you put up the piece, please don't italicize. And they were like, no, no, we don't do that. And then it, <laughs> I think mm. it was a vacation. I don't think they wanted to do it to piss me off. <laughs> and they changed it as soon as I pointed it out. They were like, oh, my bad, you know, and then whatever. <laughs> it was just uh, habit I, at that point. <laughs> I emailed them and I was like, I'm the dude that, like, people know as anti-italics, but man, you can't do that to me, man. Like, <laughs> don't do me like that. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the great thing is that a lot of people have seen that video now, like a lot. And I just have emails from random people in the publishing industry that are like, oh, I saw your video. I passed it to everyone in, on the floor, and we are all with it. And I'm like, shit. Oh, it's nice. a three-minute video, and it's really seemed to make a difference, which is amazing. Another question from Twitter. This is from Kevin Wayne Williams. He wants to know, any advice for the self-published on how to make the transition from good reviews to good sales? Mm. That's the million dollar question, isn't it? I don't know the answer. I think the thing that I always feel about marketing in general for writers and for artists is that the break for me came when I started to approach it with the same creativity that I did my art. Um, and I think that's really the hard thing to do and no one really tells you to do that. And artists were like, you know, we're always like, no, I don't want to, don't make me, you know, <laughs> don't make me deal with that marketing side. And mm -hmm. a lot of writers, you know, want to get into the major house just so that they can handle the marketing. Well, you know, heads up, as someone publishing for the major house, you still have to do the marketing. <laughs> like it's right. still on. And the, but the good news is that we live in a world now where we have, as writers, as artists, we have an unprecedented access to audience. It has never been true to the degree that it's true right now. You know, even to have a few thousand followers on Twitter is an incredible thing, um, especially the way RTs work and everything else. Um, mm -hmm. And you get to decide, you know, what your Twitter is about. And, of course, you've seen a lot of celebrities completely fail on that level. <laughs> but right. a lot of those folks are from before, you know, they're from an age before Twitter, and obviously some of it is just them not realizing just how real it is out there because that idea of it's just Twitter is still a thing for some reason, even though you know, lives have changed and people have died and other people have, <laughs> I'm not going to feed my fiance on Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, don't tell me it's just Twitter. You're getting married, son. Like, what's the matter with you? Um, so obviously it's bigger than just Twitter. But I think it's like Twitter is a, an example of a way that you can approach marketing with creativity. And especially seeing the way that folks like Teju Cole or different writers have decided to use it with just, you know, tweeting these tiny stories or obituaries or segments from things, there's so much you can do. And once you allow yourself to be creative with marketing instead of just be, oh, okay, I got to market, you know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. that is such a, a major transfer. And it doesn't actually sap your creative energy. It can really, you can use it to build your world. You can use it to explore deeper. Definitely for essays, I go in and just throw a topic out and have a big conversation about it usually. And mm -hmm. then having thought about it more deeply and in the conversatory way, it makes it a lot easier to figure out your thoughts on it. Very true. And that's all, that's all marketing. As much as it's brainstorming, you're also being public in the world and being out there. And so, you know, I, I think that's, that's a big piece of it. And it is, someone once told me it's a marathon and not a sprint. And that is the truth. Right. But, you know, we're geared, it's a fast-paced world. So we're geared towards, you know, like, you send out that great tweet, and you're, like, waiting for it to get our feet. <laughs> it doesn't happen. So like, oh, man, I got to think of another great tweet. And then like, you do, you got to keep thinking of great tweets. But that's, you know, that's follow creativity. So do that.
And with respect to Twitter, kind of going off topic a little bit, but, um, you know, the Super Bowl is coming up on the 1st of February and Katy Perry is going to be performing at the Super Bowl halftime show. Well, Katy Perry has no Grammy Awards at all, but she has tons of Twitter followers. Taylor Swift has won several Grammys, but doesn't have as many Twitter followers (laughs) as Katy Perry. So, yeah, so someone who has no Grammys, who doesn't have the kind of coveted awards that Taylor Swift or any other artists have, um, still can get booked on a halftime show because her Twitter followers are above and beyond what most, and I think she's like either number one or number two behind Justin Bieber's the most Twitter followers. So that's what people are looking at. (laughs) And let's, let's take it somewhere else because um, in the other guardian piece I wrote, I was talking about this, which is uh, this idea of Lovecraft and the whole, um, uh, what's it called that I started petition. Mm -hmm. Um, What that said to me wasn't, so I started a petition because Lovecraft is this, you know, racist troll who was uh, sort of a founding, father of the idea of weird fiction back in the day, um, but he's the head of, he's the, his head is the statue for one of the biggest fantasy awards. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have made some noise about it, um, and yeah. over the years, different people have said things, but nothing ever got to the degree that it got to when this petition happened because of Twitter, um, and because, you know, uh, when I put up this, this petition, it, it was a lot of folks that hadn't weighed in on science fiction stuff and fantasy stuff um, because folks of color and women and queer folks are not that safe at conventions and in traditional, typical sci-fi fantasy spaces. So what happens? We meet up online and we have, you know, like you guys, black girl nerds, and we have fan bros and nerdgasm noir and all these other things. So that's where it's happening. So this petition online, which not for nothing was suggesting Octavia Butler to be the replacement because she's a better writer and because she's you know, done more amazing things and was a better human being, um, that really <laughs> caught on. Like, that mm-hmm. blew up, and it became this, like, thousands and thousands of people signing it and coverage across the world, not because of me, but because of Twitter, because the people I follow and follow me on Twitter know that to be true of fantasy, because I tell you about why a lot of us started writing, you know? So, like, People were like, and then after it happened, people were like, oh, why, Kendra Butler, you know, you could have found someone more mainstream or more fantasy, whatever. And it's like, listen, it what? never would have been what it was if it wasn't because of Octavia. Like, that's why that petition was what it was. But no one wants to see that after the fact. No, no other petition got there. It's because of Octavia, and it's really because people on Twitter and in the social media sphere were like, yes, this is something that is true. We're going to sign it and blow it up. So it went viral. And there you have it. And that speaks to the changing face of fantasy fiction and the power that we really have right now. Wow. Yeah, that was a great piece. And and thank you for mentioning BGN and that. Really appreciate well, that. Guys are amazing, of course. <laughs> I, I really like the references that you made to race in the book, Half Resurrection Blues. Um, you referenced how gentrified Park Slope is and also yeah. how the New York Council of the Dead only had a few people of color. How important is it to discuss race and social issues in fictional fantasy? Um, it's so necessary. I, I, I can't, it's hard to, you know, it's a little bit like we were talking about before. You know, it's like, I don't understand how you can walk through a city, an American city, and sort of miss that, like, all these amazing things are happening, both good and bad. And mm-hmm. the city is a crossroads. There are so many crossroads of power and privilege and messiness and, and disaster and tragedy happening right in front of your doorstep. You have to have blinders over your eyes 
to not write about that as a writer. We're supposed to write about power. Conflict is supposed to be the backbone and the symphony behind any story. So mm-hmm. where is that? You know, it's like this big, uh, just gaping hole, it seems like, in so much. Um, and I think it's because a lot of people are uncomfortable and don't know how to write about it, and I think that's valid. Um, but the only way to know is to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, But I think it's, a, it's, to me, it feels like this tremendous missed opportunity um, because people are, I think, afraid, and rightfully afraid on, on the one hand that the publishing industry won't receive it well. The publishing industry is about 97% white or 95% white. So, yeah, yeah of course people are afraid, <laughs> and yeah. I get why they're afraid, and I was afraid when I was just starting out as a writer um, to tell some of those truths that I knew would be uncomfortable for white people to hear. And that's like this conversation that we always have to be having with ourselves as writers of color or as white writers who want to say deep things about race that are uncomfortable. Um, you know, how do we navigate those complicated waters and how do we say things and make sure we're not just trying to make agents and editors feel good about themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. You never know when you're going to send in something that's going to just prickle someone the wrong way and that's why you're getting rejected. As writers of color, we don't know when that's going to be true or when it's just not good enough. And that's like this added thing that we have to overcome and figure out. And unfortunately, it's still the answer that we have to find those good people in the industry. Like, I, I have been so blessed and I have found some amazing people, and that's who I'm working with. Um, but that's not always going to be the case for everybody. And I can't, you know, I can't tell Soraya that that's what's going to happen for her because the industry is so overwhelmingly white. And we can't count on white people to stand up on race because that's not historically what's happened. Mm-hmm. So, have to, we have, you know, I should be able to just say, Soraya, write whatever you want to write, say those hard truths, be exactly who you are on the page. And you will find that person, no question. Now, I hope she will, and I tell her to do that regardless, but I know that that's going to make her path as a writer that much more complicated and, and, hmm. and difficult. That's the reality. That has to change. Like, I know that that has to change, and that is changing, but it's like how are we actively going to make that change? That's for everyone to figure out. Mm. And, Connie, I'll toss it to you to ask one last question before we wrap up. Okay. Um, so what are some uh, sort of non-Western, in, part of the non-Western tradition, what are some other cultures and mythologies that inspire you? I know that there's sort of some Latino, Haitian uh, elements of lore in your in your books, as well as um, some traditional sort of Greek mythology influences. But what are some non-Western traditions that you sort of look to when, when, writing, the, when writing your books in general and this novel in particular? Yeah, that's a deep question. Um... On the one hand, it's just the, I just I really believe in the power of storytelling. Period, and just storytelling. Period. <laughs> that I think is its own form of mythology, and by that I include like gossip on the corner. You know the way people mm. talk in their nail salons, the oh, yeah. crap people say to each other in the ambulance between calls. That's all storytelling, <laughs> and it's amazing storytelling. If you stop and listen to it, and stop just um, there's a lot of respectability politics. I think about what are really considered worthwhile stories and what's a myth mm-hmm. and what's a folk tale, you know, and what's just gossip. And it's like, if we include everything for a second and we stop trying to make a hierarchy of what's a real story, um, we learn so much because there's some amazing storytelling skills that happen in just the everyday interactions of how we speak to each other, including oh, yeah. love and hate and sex and death and all these deep things that literature is supposed to be about, but because people want to be caught up in that hierarchy, you know, it just gets really, it gets really, um, Stifle it, really. 
um, to that. And then on the other hand, I'm a Lukumi priest of Yamaya, um, the Santeria tradition. So there's so that's a tradition that has it's so rich with stories. Um, like it's an oral tradition, but there's written work and there's amazing storytelling that's woven into the divination system and to the everyday interactions and the rituals. Um, stories just really are a, like threads within the fabric of that entire tradition. Um, so that has inspired me a lot. People who are in that tradition will read my books and be like, oh, he's talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I did on purpose because I feel like there's so many winks and nods in mainstream white science fiction to Western culture and Western mm -hmm. you know, mythology and all that stuff. And like, we all know that too, but it gets old. You know what I mean? Like, it gets old. Yeah. It's, too. it's like, yeah, okay, so you, you reference Greek myths. Like, congratulations. Did you do it in a new way? I mean, some people do it. That's awesome. Um, but it's also like, can we get some some high fives around the backside? Like, can we get some right. winks and nods too for what you know? What does it mean to go beyond just having a black or brown face in a novel? Actually, mm -hmm. root the mythology and the magic in where we are from and what we're about. That's another question, and that's like the deeper question of why it's not just about diverse characters. It's also about diverse authors and diverse publicists and publishers and agents and all those things. You know, like we're talking about rooting it. So Shadow Shaper is a really good example of that, which is coming out in June and is for younger readers. But um, but I try to do that with all my work. I try to really take some a whole different medley of things that we're used to saying. Wow. I really wish this could be a two-hour show. <laughs> we could keep going. Like, it's so great having Twitter in on it, too. Yeah, so. I have to say, um, this has been a very popular show tonight. A lot of folks had questions. Um, unfortunately, I haven't been able to get to everybody's question because we do have to wrap up. But yes. um, before we go, Daniel, tell us where we can get Half Resurrection Blues and um, your website and where you are on Twitter and all your other social media networks. Definitely. Um, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter at DJ Older. I'm not a DJ. People say you're <laughs> a lot of okay. Maybe one day, I was, when I was a kid, I didn't want to be like a radio DJ, like Robin Williams and Good Morning Vietnam and like tell stories in between song and all that shit. But anyway, um, <laughs> my website is ghoststar.net. I blog on there. You can also look at the archives from when I was a paramedic and telling all the stories of that stuff, which is an interesting kind of, you can see how it led into the fiction. Um, my book is now at Barnes & Noble, which is amazing. I just got my Ooh. first tweet when in Barnes & Noble with the book tonight. Yes. So I'm really excited. That feels like another level of, like, I made it, you know? <laughs> so you can get it online. It's on Amazon and it's on Penguin. If you go to my Twitter page, it's in my bio. There's a link to where you can buy it everywhere. It's called Half Resurrection Blues. And it is book one of the Bone Street Roomba series. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, Daniel, for coming on the show. And yes, please get that book. It's really great. Please support it. And just know that um, there's more books like this coming in the future from Daniel. He does really awesome work. Um, so follow him on Twitter if you haven't done on so already. And again, thank you, Daniel, for being on the show tonight. Thank uh, you so much. I had so much fun. Yes, yes, certainly. And thank you, Connie, for co-hosting. I also had a lot of fun and learned a lot and sort of felt better about my writing process as well. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Good. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yes, yes. We all did. And a lot of folks on Twitter did as well. So uh, thank you for that. 
And next week, guys, is our Gem Live Tweet podcast. You know, we did Gem Live Tweet for a full year last year, and it rolled over into um, this year, and we stopped back in November because we had finished all three seasons. So we're going to celebrate by bringing on Britta Phillips and Samantha Newark. Britta Phillips is the singing voice of Gem, and Samantha Newark is the speaking voice of Gem, so they will be on next week. And our co-hosts are going to be our Gem Live Tweet creators, Candice Frederick and Kimberly Renee. So tune into that. That's next week, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Good night. Bye. Good night. Good night. Bye. Finally, I'm finally.